Well, Merry Christmas. Try it again. Merry Christmas. There we go. That sounds better. Good. Why don't you turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3? We're going to look specifically at verse 15, but I want to read a bit beyond that. So we're going to start uh, in verse uh, 9, uh, pardon me, verse 8, and we're going to read through to the end of 20. So if you've got that in your Bible, Genesis 3, 8 through 20, and once you're there, then I'd ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And these are the words of our holy God. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I hear the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And you may be seated. I want to start early on in church history this morning. The first few hundred years of the church were consumed with discussion and debate about who Jesus was. Was he a man or was he God? And many different ideas and proposed solutions had come about, but it was not a settled issue of the church until the church decided in the year 325 that they needed to get together and hammer this out once and for all. And the Council of Nicaea was called. And we have the Nicene Creed that many churches repeat to this day. Uh, And maybe with time we should as well. Which is a full description of, uh, or affirmation of, the full manhood and the full deity of Jesus Christ. And when this council had called together, there was two particular heresies that were floating around. One was called Arianism, which said, well, Jesus was just a man... He wasn't fully God. He was, just, he was created by God at some further point. And our Jehovah's Witnesses neighbors hold this view to this very day. And then there was another view uh, that said, well, Jesus can't have been fully human because humanity is garbage. It's sinful. It's material stuff. It must be bad. So Jesus wasn't really a man. And this view was called docetism. And in the midst of this debate, 
a bishop from Myra by the name of St. Nicholas. Maybe you've heard of him. Has anyone heard of Santa Claus? Okay. I want to put Santa Claus back in Christmas this morning. St. Nicholas of Myra was at this debate, and when Arius was sharing his view that Jesus was created, he was made, there was a time at which he was not, St. Nicholas just welled up with anger. How dare you treat my Lord that way? And St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, went up and punched Arius in the face at this council. And we can debate whether St. Nicholas was a good guy or a bad guy. The other bishops felt maybe it was time for him to go home. And they would settle this without him. And mercifully, they did. But St. Nicholas was a real man. And our tradition follows, to a large degree, some of St. Nicholas's work. He did give gifts to children. Uh, There's many stories of him rescuing young girls out of prostitution. So St. Nicholas is a Christian man, someone that we're maybe not familiar with because of all the mythology that surrounded it in our time, but he was a real historical person, and he played a role in us understanding the divine nature of Jesus as we do. And because we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew, or we've started it, we've actually recently done Advent maybe a bit too soon. We went through uh, the nativity scene of Jesus back in September and through his genealogy, and so I decided for this morning, rather than go over the exact same stuff we just did in September, we'll go back further. We'll go back to the first promise of Jesus in the garden. So as we just read, even in the midst of cursing the ground, of cursing creation, of cursing humanity, God is gracious and he offers the hope of escape in the midst of it. What we read in Genesis 3.15, the promise of the seed, is called the Proto-Evangelium, which just means the pre-gospel. This is the first promise of the gospel appears as early as Genesis 3.15, the gospel is present. And it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall crush your head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Some translations say offspring. The ESV says offspring. I think the Geneva Bible and the King James do a better job here using the word seed. It's more specific. And the word here in Hebrew is zerah, which does quite literally mean seed. In the verb form, it's a, it's a picture of putting seed in the ground. Uh, it's from which we get our English word semen. And interestingly, the word seminary is rooted in the same exact thing. The seminary is a nursery for shepherds. It's a seed plot. So strictly speaking, this promise of a seed sounds odd because in human procreation, the seed is offered by the man and not the woman. And we'll discuss that a bit later. But there's enmity here between the woman and between the serpent. And it's twofold. There's enmity. There's a war between the two seeds. So those who belong to Christ, those who belong to the woman, and those who belong to the serpent. So because of Jesus, we have two columns of humanity. And no one is in between these two columns. You're either in Adam, in your fallen state, or you're in Christ, in your redeemed state. You are a seed of the woman or a seed of the serpent. But this also sets in motion the long war between the seed of the woman and the serpent himself, Satan. And so we have an expectation here. From the vantage point of history, don't we all tend to see history in terms of our own lives? Right? That's the time scope we work with. I'm 43 years old, so history started roughly in September of 1979. Don't we do that? And I don't think our first parents would have been much different. 
I think their frame of reference of what was about to happen, what had happened, naturally would have revolved around them. So they would have seen this promise as happening very, very soon. And yet they grabbed this promise of God by faith. You'll notice in verse 20 that Adam changes his wife's name from Isha, which is the woman, so her first name is Isha, woman, from man. He changes her name to Eve, which is the mother of the living in expectation of her role in bringing about this promised seed. And because pregnancy is common in our experience, let's not forget what it would have been like for Eve to be pregnant. She couldn't go talk to her mom. She couldn't talk to her older sister who left home and got married several years before. This is the first time in history a woman has been pregnant. Now think of that. You wake up and your stomach is churning. And no matter what you eat, you're throwing up. And it feels like a curse because it is a curse. God has cursed this whole process with pain. And your body is changing and there's cramps and there's pain and there's heartburn and there's kicking at your ribs and you don't even know what's inside of you. What is happening to me? Am I dying? Does the curse go all the way? What is happening? There's no resources. There's no way to find out what you can talk to. And then one night in excruciating pain and anguish, your body starts doing this thing that you don't know what is happening. And out comes this little seed. God's promise has been faithful. I did this for nine long months. Here's the seed that God promised me. And Adam and Eve named their son Cain accordingly, a man from God. Here's their Messiah. Here's the seed who came to save them. But he wasn't. And life went on more or less the same as it had before Cain showed up. Is God slow to keep his promise? The seed hasn't delivered me. There's still thorns. There's still thistles. Where are you, God? You promised, and nothing's happening. And Eve gets pregnant again. And this time, when this son comes out, perhaps hope is lost. Perhaps they're not trusting in the promises of God so strongly because they name him Abel, which means vapor, futility. This is all for nothing. It's hopeless. We have the vantage point of history. We know God is telling a long story with this seed. And we can trace this seed all through our Old Testament. It takes many twists and turns to get to God's promised seed. Unexpected things happen, like Jacob coming in over Esau. God narrows the seed all the way down to one man and his family when he drowns the earth, and a new world emerges after the flood. And even of those three boys, only one is the carrier of the seed, Shem, from which we get the word Shemites or Semites or Semitic people, God's Jewish people. And the seed is further narrowed down to one man, Abraham, with whom God makes his covenant. And God promises the nations to Abraham that they will be blessed through his seed. And after Abraham passes his own test of being willing to sacrifice his son, in Genesis 22, 15 and on, It says, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this 
and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And your offspring shall, and through your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so the promise continues. It goes on through Judah and Tamar. We talked about some of these in Jesus' genealogy where Tamar goes to drastic measures to keep this seed alive through her father-in-law Judah. And then the first of the twins by Judah that come out gets this scarlet thread on his wrist, and his name is Zerah, seed, the word God used in Genesis 3.15. We have the story of Ruth and Boaz and David getting a son by adultery of all things, Solomon. And so this seed gets traced all through the Bible stories. And we see that there is both a one and a many, a singular and a plural aspect to what God is doing. In Galatians 3.16, we see the seed in the singular form, where it says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Jesus Christ Coming as a man is the singular seed of Abraham. And going further back, this is the promised seed that was promised to Eve. So contrary to what Eve may have expected, her waiting was not over after nine months, or after nine years, or after 90 years. Eve waits 4,000 years. Over a hundred generations of daughters, she's waiting for her vengeance. And here he comes. Finally, the seed of her daughter appears. And because we are adopted into God's family, there is also a many application of this seed. Keep going in Galatians 3, in verse 29, it talks about the many. It says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So who is the seed of the woman? We are. We are adopted as Christ's brothers and sisters. We are the seed of the woman because we are grafted into Christ. This happens often. We saw the promise earlier in Hosea 11.1. Who is God's son that he calls out of Egypt? Well, it's Israel, but it's also Christ, the many and the one. And towards the end of Paul's gospel to the, or epistle to the Romans, there's a promise here that echoes back to this first promise about the seed in the garden. It says in Romans 16 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So see two things here. God gets the glory in this crushing and yet he uses human instruments as he goes about it. And so there's unity in the cause of Christ and in his church here. In Hebrews 2, it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he may destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
So Christ represents us before God in a similar way as Adam, but where Adam fails, Christ succeeds. Christ is the God-man. He is fully God, and he must be fully God if he is to escape the curse of the fall. And this happens by him being a seed of a woman and not by him being a seed of a man. Transference, family headship, the family name, family blessings and curses come through the father, through the man. God designed it this way. Men are covenantal heads. And therefore, the fall transfers through Adam and through his sons. And so it's significant. You've heard me say this before. But it's not just a party trick uh, that Jesus is born of a virgin without the assistance of a man. Had he been born from a man, he would have carried that covenantal curse on him. He would not have been innocent. He would have been born guilty like me and you are. So he is the seed of a woman. He talks about how Adam transfers this fall and this corrupt nature to all who are after him in Romans 5, 17 through 19. It says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace of the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So Christ is not in Adam. Christ is a separate head of humanity, a separate column from Adam. And Christ bypasses the death that Adam brought by not descending from him. And we might be asking, well, Eve's also a sinner, so why wouldn't he have inherited a sinful nature from her? And again, this has to do with Adam's representation as a man, a father's representation as he gives his name to his family. This is a covenantal blessing or a covenantal curse that comes through our father in a way that does not come through our mother. So it's Eve who actually sins first, as we just saw. But Paul is pointing out that it's Adam's responsibility for the fall. He failed to protect his wife and keep her from this. So it's that in Adam we die and not in Eve. And again, this is what is meant. This is why it's significant that Jesus is the seed of the woman. No man was involved. So this conception in Mary was real. And it happened directly and immediately by God. And there's many breadcrumbs that happen in the Old Testament here as well. How many stories do you hear in the Old Testament about barren women or early widowhood or a woman who has lost her son or is bereaved? These are all stories about leading us up to this miraculous birth, to the seed of a woman who is much anticipated. How many of Eve's daughters cried in anguish for a seed that they couldn't have? bearing the weight of the curse of Eve until one daughter finally bears that promise. So the God-man is important because only God can ultimately satisfy the righteous requirements of God. But only a man can truly represent you and me before God. And so Christ is a ladder between man and God. And if we just say, well, Jesus was just God, that's all he is, is just God, no humanity, that ladder does in fact reach all the way to the top. But here's the problem. It doesn't get all the way down. There's no start. There's no way for me and you to get on that ladder. It doesn't matter that it goes to the top because it doesn't reach us. And if Jesus is just a man, he's not God. He's just some teacher that people in North America like to respect as a great moral sage. 
Yes, the ladder comes all the way down. We can get on it. But that ladder does not get all the way up. Okay? The God-man is important because the ladder of Jesus Christ that separates this gulf between us and God comes all the way down and it goes all the way up. We must affirm both the divinity and the actual physical human nature of Jesus. Body and nature. There's a principle in storytelling from a, a Russian author by the name of Anton Chekhov that goes like this when he's teaching his students how to write a good story. It says, remove everything that has no relevance to the story. If you say in the first chapter that there is a rifle hanging on the wall, in the second or third chapter, it absolutely must go off. If it's not going to be fired, it shouldn't be hanging there. See this principle? God is the greatest storyteller of all, and so when you're reading through your Old Testament, there are no irrelevant details. Those genealogies aren't something you just read fast so you can make up time in your Bible reading program. They matter. Because there's actual men and women actually involved in getting this seed of promise into our possession, into our hands. God is a great and detailed storyteller. And we see all these things that the, the problem is resolved, or the problem is set up at the beginning of Scripture, and it's resolved by the end. The tree that Adam and Eve are kicked away from, they're barred from it, it reappears in the new creation, giving life. We see the seed of the woman. Abram has promised descendants more numerous than the stars, and what do we have by the end of Scripture? There is a host from every tongue, tribe, and nation fulfilling the promise to Abram that all the nations of the, ble- of the, nations w- all the, nations of the earth would be blessed by him. We see the serpent creating this problem in the garden. And what happens in Revelation 12.9? And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down. You see the unique place of a man's bride in the garden, where Eve is taken out of man's side. And we see that resolved in Christ, where his side is opened up to give life to his bride, us. And so there's a story that crosses all through Scripture, telling us, about this promised seed that comes in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Our stories, if they're good enough, sometimes move from books to movies. Lord of the Rings is good enough, it moves from books to movies. But God is the only storyteller who can start with a book and turn it into actual human history. Isn't that remarkable? Human history is a story. It's a story so good it starts in God's mind and it becomes physical And in time and in space, it becomes a real thing. And so if you've noticed the picture behind me, you'll notice some lots of significance there. I love this picture. Because that picture sums up the whole story of the Bible. If you want to see Genesis to Revelation in one picture, there it is. And you might say, but there's something that's not quite accurate, Matt. I noticed that Mary is crushing the head of the serpent. Is this accurate? Well, it's a pregnant Mary, so there's the promise of a Savior there. And let's think of her place in the nativity story. We don't want to take a Roman Catholic view where Mary is essentially a co-redemptrix with Christ. That's not what we're saying. However, at the same time, she does play a significant role in bringing Jesus about. She is the vessel by which this seed comes to earth. And so Mary is really one of the stars of the Christmas story. And it's worth considering this 4,000-year story that God tells between Eve 
and Mary, between the two mothers. Eve has promised the seed who will crush the head of the serpent. This is the serpent who deceived Eve, and through her childbearing, she gets vengeance. So Eve, in her daughter Mary, finally gets to play her role in getting the serpent's head crushed. Think of how great Satan's humiliation is here. Not only is he going to be defeated by God, but to be defeated by a baby, born from a womb that he sought to pollute with death. God has not just won in Jesus Christ, but he has put his enemy to open shame and disgrace and given the mothers of the human race their long-awaited righteous vengeance. Like General Sisera, who had a tent peg pounded through his head by a woman, Jael, like Abimelech, who had a millstone dropped on his skull by an unnamed woman. The devil's destiny, coward that he is, is not just to lose. It's to lose in part to a woman. Again, Romans 16.20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And the way this is phrased is so interesting. God is the one who crushes Satan once and for all partly through the instrument of his church. And it's no coincidence that the, that the church, the bride of Christ, is described in feminine language. The church of Jesus Christ is a mother and a bride. The church includes all those who are united to Christ. And so in a real way, through our union with Christ, we are able to see in real life the tangible benefits of Christ coming in a human form into the physical world to destroy the power of the serpent, of sin, and of darkness. And so why emphasize all this physical, real-world stuff? Well, I think it's important. The physical incarnation of Christ is a big deal. Christ truly took on a human body and a human nature to redeem us all the way. I think sometimes we think about the humanity of Christ as basically pertaining to his body, right? So Christ has a human body, but everything that's inside him is just pure divinity, and that's not the case. Jesus got tired. Jesus had emotions, Jesus had a human nature, not just a human body, a human nature, so that he was tempted in every way as we are. The human nature that he receives from his mother is significant. And as we look forward to his return one day, Christ ascended, he was resurrected bodily, and he is going to return also bodily, physically. So Jesus did not give up a physical body when he ascended to heaven. Jesus has a physical body right now. Where is it? I have no idea but a physical body ascended to the Father. And so the goodness of created, physical, material world is one of the things that sets biblical Christianity apart from the Eastern mystery religions. And so I think it's applicable uh, that we enjoy real-world things. This is an appropriate response for us as Christians at Christmas. Not many weeks ago, we saw the faithfulness of the Magi as they brought gifts to Jesus. And physical gifts are, in fact, fitting for a physical creation. Christ is Lord all the way down to the level of atoms and molecules. And so if we give each other rearranged molecules for Christmas, that's fitting. The incarnation of Jesus, his bodily coming to earth, should not send us down a path into empty materialism and consumerism. But it most certainly should impact our calendars. The incarnation of Jesus should invade your living room. It should surround your dining room table. It should impact your family. Enjoying food and laughter together, exchanging gifts, singing songs, telling stories, 
and creating our own unique traditions are all real-world expressions of thanks, of peace, and of the promise of Christmas, of the God-man who finally has arrived to save us from our sins. And so I want to encourage all of us as we go out this morning, enjoy the real-world blessings that God has given us, not in a, uh, not in a self-indulgent way, but in a way that honors the giver of all good gifts. The physical creation is good. Enjoy it to the glory of God. And I'll leave it right there. We probably all want to be home a bit early and do some of this. So let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you for your promise. Thank you for your painstaking way of telling stories through many centuries, even millennia, of getting us ready for what you are about to do, repeating the same themes over and over and over again so we get it into our slow learning minds. Lord, and I pray that you would help all of us here to see the painstaking detail you have gone to through so many daughters, through so many women, through the birth narratives of Scripture, through the miraculous births, through the barren wombs, until we get to your Son. Lord, and I pray that we would keep in mind the true reason we are celebrating, that we should neither veer into self-indulgence and to sinful sloth on the one hand, nor into some kind of cold aestheticism on the other hand. Lord, you are the maker of heaven and earth, and I pray that you would give us, fill our hearts with joy as we celebrate your coming, as we spend time with people we love and care for. Lord, and for this fellowship, for this church, Lord, I pray that you would fill us with the joy of your spirit, that we can go from here uh, thinking, reminding ourselves of what you have done to redeem us. Lord, help us, and I pray that as we close in song, as we fellowship, Lord, I pray that your spirit would be with us as we recount the incredible gift of your son, the God-man that you have given us this Christmas. We thank you for your kindness, and we pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So the charge is this. It is fitting that we mark time by the coming of our Savior to earth. We do this as we count the years since his arrival, but also in Advent celebrations which reach their crescendo on Christmas Day. Our celebration is never an excuse for indulging in the very sins that Christ came to set us free from. But the celebration should also not be seen as a distraction in our battle against the sins, sorrows, and thorns that infest our world. Rather, we celebrate with vigor because our sins are forgiven. Our consciences are clean. We have inherited eternal life. So our celebration fills us with gladness as we lay siege of the darkness. Too often we justify laziness and self-indulgence by telling ourselves it's the holidays. Christmas is not a permission slip for sin. It's a feast that invigorates us, one of the blessings that flow out as far as the curse is found. And I'll leave you with the benediction from Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And go in peace, and Merry Christmas. <laughs>